Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. July 27th, 1881 was the happiest day in the life of Andrew Carnegie, a Scottish weaver's son who had, been, who had risen from a Pittsburgh bobbin boy at $1.20 a week to American's King of Steel, one of the world's most fabled rich men. He was always proud to be called the Star-Spangled Scotchman, and he had set his heart on a triumphal return to Dumfrieshire the city of his birth in the east of Scotland. He would write, what Benares is to the Hindu, Mecca to the Muslim, and Jerusalem to the Christian, all that Dunfernley is to me. Carnegie's trip had been long planned with his mother and a select group of friends. He crossed the Atlantic from New York, set out from Brighton onto the south coast of England, and slowly traveled north to Scotland and Dunfernley in a carriage that was royally built and led and furnished, and he was led by four horses, At four o'clock in the afternoon, the coach, led by four horses, rolled up to St. Leonard Street, greeted by banners reading, Welcome, Carnegie, generous son. The official parade began passing passing by the small stone cottage where Carnegie had been born and where he and his poverty stricken family had fled to Pittsburgh 33 years earlier in 1848. During the trip, And the the parade, pausing between stops, Margaret, Carnegie's mother, who had sat on top of the carriage for most of the parade, asked to sit inside unseen so that she could weep freely as they passed through her hometown. Homecomings, alumni reunions, and visits to ancestral countries, we can most people identify with the emotions of a native son returning home. But Andrew Carnegie's pride had another source. Years earlier, when he was a young boy and he and his family lived in hardship in Pittsburgh, he found his mother weeping one day in a moment of despair, and cradling her hands in his, he urged her not to cry and tried to console her. Someday I'll be rich, he assured her, and we'll ride in a fine coach driven by four horses. She responded, that will do no good over here if no one in Dunfernay can see us. At that moment, the young Andrew solemnly resolved that someday he and his mother would make this grand entry into their hometown with a coach and with four horses leading them through the town for everyone to witness. For his mother's sake, he would show them. A Pittsburgh audience would not be enough for him. He had to prove the Carnegies' family greatness before his hometown. He had to be seen as strong in front of his own people. Ambition is a tricky thing. When we talk about our life and our aims, we often overlook the vital part of who our audience is. Only madmen and supreme egotists do things purely for themselves. Most of us, whether we're aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience. So the question is not whether we have an audience. The question is what audience do we have and what one we're longing for. Which audience are you most concerned with? When we come to Luke chapter 9, there's an audience around the disciples. Before we come to this chapter, they've been sent out to serve, to preach, to heal, and they're now unable to, to, do, to perform here in our passage this morning. They, they perhaps had come to believe that ministry would be done in isolation from God, from, from leaning on Jesus and trusting his power. 
They were following Jesus, but they were unable to serve fully because they didn't understand who Jesus was and why he came. Their audience was the crowds, but not the king. They wanted to be seen as great. Perhaps that's why they won't be able to heal the boy in our passage. But also their motivation for service seems misguided. As we will see, they want power, they want prestige, they want a place. But Jesus then corrects their misconceptions of following God and shows their needs in the process. Following Jesus is never quick and easy. It's always a process of growth. So, as we dive in here, almost finishing Luke chapter 9. We won't quite finish it this morning. Here is the main idea that I want to communicate this morning. Following Jesus means we trust in him, believe him, and submit ourselves to him according to his word. Following Jesus means we trust in him, believe him, and submit ourselves to him according to his word. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you must have these three needs met. And that's the outline for this morning as we walk through this passage. As, as we see in this passage, the disciples of Jesus need faith, understanding, and humility. Faith, understanding, and humility. We need faith that recognizes our inability and Jesus' majesty, and we see that with the healing of the possessed boy in verses 37 through 43. The disciples of Jesus also need divine illumination, that, that understanding that grasps the significance of Jesus' suffering, and we see that in verses 43 through 45. And last, we see the disciples of Jesus as Christians, we need humility that prizes association with Jesus above self-promotion and above rivalry. And we see that last in verses 46 through 50. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We're almost done with this chapter. We're going to look at verses 37 through 50. Look with me in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. And the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it up, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this scene. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him on his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. I've said this a few times as we've began this chapter, but this whole chapter is, is pivotal to the book of Luke. It's not the climax that comes later in chapter 23, 
But this entire chapter pivots the entire story of what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. And when you lack faith and understanding of who Jesus is and why he came, it tends to develop pride and rivalry and antagonism. So I've been praying this week and this morning that the words of the Bible, the words of Jesus would sink deep into our ears, as Jesus says, that we would come away changed because of the preaching. So first I want to look at is disciples of Jesus need faith. When we leave the, the mountaintop experience, we're always confronted with real life. Most people live in the valleys, and that's where ministry regularly happens. Just as Moses left Mount Sinai to see the idolatry of people at the golden calf, Jesus comes down to see the effects of sin on this world. And the mountaintop experiences of life are thrilling to be sure, but the real work awaits for us in the valley where real hurting people live. Jesus and his three men, Peter, John, and James, come down from the mountain and find a father desperate for help. The boy was consumed by a demon, mistreating him, causing him to convulse. The poor boy lived in an aquarium-like existence. He can see what's going on around his pathetic body, but he cannot hear or speak or do anything about it. And you can imagine the hopelessness the father would feel as he went to Jesus' men to see if they could help. Jesus is gone. He's up top of the mountain. But the disciples' power that was given in the beginning of chapter 9 wasn't able to save the boy. They were still unbelieving. He says in verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, he gave him back to the father and all were astonished at the majesty of God. The question most prominent in this section is, who is Jesus talking about in verses 41? This faithless and twisted generation. Well, it's probably best seen as a description as applicable to everyone covered by all there in verse 43. Talking to everyone in the crowd, the disciples and the crowd. All of these are members present of faithless and twisted generation. He's saying, you people of this time, there's no belief. Your heart is corrupt. You're bent on trusting in yourself and not God. It was distressing to the Father. But as we read, it's also distressing to Christ to see the people of God reduced to such helpless anguish as a result from the nation's departure and and lack of faith in God. And in in his distress, Christ described the situation using a phrase that we find in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32.5, in that passage, Moses is rebuking Israel for forsaking God and going after idols. And he says, they are a crooked and twisted generation. And later in verses 19 and 20, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. And they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. The Lord's heart, I'm sure, was broken by the pervading atmosphere of unbelief. And you see the display by Jesus concerning the refusal to trust and believe in God. I'm sure coming off of the mountain with the time spent in prayer with the Father, he now feels, Jesus feels like a stranger in the midst of unbelief. And now in a marvelous picture of redemption, though, Jesus acts, Jesus works. Jesus puts back order where chaos reigned in this family's life. And he heals the boy 
and he gives them back to his father. The disciples' problem was they had subtly moved from trusting in God to to faith in the process, which is to say faith in themselves. They had cast out demons before when he sent them out, and surely they could do it now. But where was God in the process? Who were they truly relying on? These verses press home the need for faith in our lives. Faith is confidence in Jesus' power and authority to help us. Friends, it's easy to trust in Jesus when things are going well. We might even find it easy and comforting to trust in Jesus when we have a string of good things that happen to us. And it's easy to trust in Jesus when we can see a possible solution on the horizon. But when there's no answer in front of us, when there's no clear way out, no resolution, that's when our faith in him is on display. When the cancer is not healed, when you are laid off from your job, when your child doesn't respond in faith, trusting in Jesus, when your marriage seems to dissolve, or even when you have no viable candidate for marriage. Those are the situations that reveal who we're really trusting in. We've learned in this book that God's timetable is not our own. You know, I know that there are many parents here in this room and those watching online who are praying for salvation for your kids. And I want to encourage you to keep praying. Keep entrusting your kids to God. The father here knew of only one person that could save, and he brought the boy before Jesus. And the same's for us. We're to bring our kids before Jesus. Day and night, bring them before the throne of God. God's time of conversion for our kids may not be our time. God may seem fit to save your kids after you're in the grave. Are you okay with that? As long as your child lives and a parent prays, we have no right to worry about their soul. We trust in Jesus to do the saving. We don't trust in ourselves. So first, we learn we need faith. Second, disciples of Jesus need understanding. Verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus is going to speak. The action of Jesus, as, as the crowd saw, it was the action of God. They see God is great. The magnificent splendor of God seen the day before on the mountain was now apparent to the people below. The glory of God and his awesome compassion was shown through his works and power and deliverance. And Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask about him, the saying. They thought they had enough insight to Jesus' identity, even willing to confess it. He was the Messiah. But really, Jesus was still a stranger to them. They lived in a world that worshipped power. So to be crucified was the extreme of disgrace and shameful weakness. 
and a crucified Messiah seem like an absurd contradiction. So the disciples are in a difficult position of having to picture Jesus in two uh, scenes at once. Power and powerlessness. Jesus has enough power to heal the boy, and he will give up power and allow men to arrest him. And the disciples couldn't live in both realities at once. How or, or why will one who has power and authority over all of life be found in a position of having his life and death seemingly determined by others? It made no sense to them. Perhaps they were afraid to ask because they were beginning to realize the threatening destiny that Jesus faced now had implications on their life. We do that too, don't we? When we know the answer and we don't like the answer, so we refuse to ask the question. In Matthew's gospel, they were fearful and greatly distressed by Jesus' prediction. Maybe they were just plain afraid to hear something that they knew would make them sorrowful. Even with spiritual intervention, we all have an amazing ability to not hear what we don't want to hear. But Jesus tells us, let these words sink into your ears. So friends, if everything else you don't hear this morning, listen to this. Because the great message that we need to hear this morning is that we who are made to know God have separated ourselves from God by our sin, by our refusal to listen to the truth, by our refusal to live by the truth, by our refusal to acknowledge who Jesus rightly is. And we deserve God's judgment by the way we have lived our lives, those secret sins that no one knows about, the attitudes of self-sufficiency, the thoughts of pride that dominate our thoughts, we rightly deserve God's judgment of us. But God, by his great love in Christ, has come and lived a life deserving no punishment. Jesus knew the adoration of the crowds would not last for him. The fickle hearts of men would betray him and send him to his death. And he would be delivered over to men to be crucified. Jesus would go willingly to the cross. They would praise him on Palm Sunday and crucify him on Friday. The world's praise doesn't last very long. The disciples couldn't see past the suffering, they couldn't see past the cross, they couldn't see any hope beyond the grave. And they didn't want to see themselves in this picture. They only wanted to see the highlights, the mountaintop experiences, the glory. But Jesus was going to the cross for their sins. It would be suffering, then glory. Jesus has taken our sins on his body on the cross, the sins of all those from every nation who repent and believe in him. And he calls us now to repent and believe to turn away from your life that ignores God and turn to him in faith this morning. So I implore you, friends, to turn to Jesus. Turn away from your faith and trust in yourself and turn to him. 
Well, when we lack faith and understanding of who Jesus is and why he came, it tends to develop pride and, and rivalry. And that leads to the last point. The disciples of Jesus need humility. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The disciples, three of them, came off the mountain. And the inner circle comes back to the other nine. And after Jesus saves their bacon with healing of the boy, what do we find them doing and talking about on the way to the home? Arguing about who is the greatest. Maybe it was their way of locating blame for their failure to heal the demonic boy. Perhaps it was their way of ignoring the hard truth that a long Messiah had, had said he would be arrested and taken away. Either way, their eyes went from looking at the glory of Jesus to the glory of themselves. And discussing human greatness always seems to divert praise from God to ourselves. It seems they, they don't like this talk of suffering very much. So they just ignore it. They're going to allow the world's way of thinking to dictate how they will live. And friends, I want you to recognize that we're beholding the patience of God in this passage. You are beholding the kindness and gentleness and forbearance of Jesus in this passage because the disciples are stuck on stupid in the midst of their arrogance and selfishness, the Messiah calls them together and, and defines for them what true greatness is. And no matter how we want to see these disciples as different than ourselves, we are just like them. And thankfully, Jesus is merciful and gentle with our pride-drenched hearts. And he contrast for them as greatness is culturally and sinfully defined with what true greatness is, is biblically defined. And Jesus takes a child and brings him to the forefront. A child in the first century had no status or, or rank, could offer no reward or return of service. Children occupied the lowest place in that society. A child had no power, no money, no recognition, no accomplishments, and Jesus brings a child before their eyes to teach them a great spiritual lesson. A child is made in the image of God, and yet to an adult, a child can't push forward their agenda or ambitions in their time. In effect, it's the least of persons in society, he says, are greater than you. And so for us, it would be like Jesus taking a homeless person, someone that you look at with disgust, someone you think that's just living off the system, abusing the system, and you work hard, you believe you've earned everything that you have. You're due. And Jesus takes this homeless person and says, this person, this one is great. Not you. And it would be incredibly humbling. And Jesus is going after the pride in their hearts. J.C. Ryle writes, of all the sins, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray is pride. It is a pestilence that walks in darkness and a sickness that destroyed at noonday. 
No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like our skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most harmful energy. No sin is so deceptive and deceitful. It can wear the garb of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the ungifted, and the poor, as well as in the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. Most of us not only want to be great, but we also want to be viewed as great by others. We live for the approval of the audience, like Andrew Carnegie did. We want to be great in comparison to others, to be the greatest. You might even think that Peter, James, and John would be content with what they were invited to experience on top of the mountaintop, but their hearts won't settle until they're recognized as the greatest in the inner circle. And we are the same. And Jesus brings in a little child to show us what greatness is. Why a child? Because that's how God views us. You and I are not very impressive towards God. Sorry to crush you this morning, but friends, you and I are very boring compared to God. You and I are not very powerful, not great. At best, we're very ordinary. And get this, God says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. That's what Titus says. God goes after us, bringing salvation to us. I'm a nobody. Literally, outside of this church family and my own family, I am unknown. And yet, God in his rich mercy pursued me and saved me. Compared to Jesus, I'm boring. And yet, God saves me and brings me in to serve him. Friends, compared to Jesus, you're boring. The 19th century English preacher... Charles Spurgeon said to his hearers in London, you are the same sort of person as those whom Jesus used to welcome. They were good for nothing nobodies. They were persons that were full of need and could not possibly bring a price with which to purchase his favor. Are you not just like them? Are you a very special sinner? I'm sure I could find another special sinner like you whom Jesus has received. And in that, friends, we learn that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come the same. Even more than that, Jesus teaches why being like children makes you the greatest in the kingdom. Do you see the logic in verse 48? Look again, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus means the message is greater than the messenger. Even if the message comes from a little child, the Lord offers himself to the world in the message. The Christ preached is greater than the preacher of Christ. So the main thing isn't the giver of the message, but the God of the message. And Jesus will drive this home to the, to the disciples here in a couple minutes in verses 49 and 50. 
But Jesus, in these, in these verses, he doesn't eliminate greatness or even the pursuit of greatness. But what he does is he redefines it. He, he captures it and purifies it and redirects it. And this is a magnificent reversal of what greatness is. It's as if we're, we're to walk into a fine restaurant and Jesus were to ask, who's the, who's the great one here? It's not the owner or the wealthy person eating. No, he says it's the, it's the busboy. He's great. The least among you, the servant. Jonathan Edward writes in his commentary, biblical greatness belongs to the one who is not great according to the culture. That's what Jesus is doing. This is revolutionary to understanding what greatness is. And so friends, don't be fooled at the greatness of this world. It will always disappoint. Do you struggle with greatness? Do you struggle to see and identify true greatness in our world? Husbands, look at your wife. Consider all the ways she has given up herself to serve you and to serve your family. How she serves your kids, if you have some in the home still. Have you recognized her greatness in giving of herself for others, for you? She continues to give of herself. That's true greatness. Stop looking at the world for the definition of greatness. Wives, do you see the examples of greatness in your husbands as they continue to faithfully serve you and your family? Giving themselves to the needs of, of the home and, and work and church. Don't look at the world for the definition of greatness. Observe it in your own home. Kids, all you see here, there is someone truly great in the eyes of God seated close by to you, most likely. How do you view them? You know, when God commands us to honor our father and mother, one thing he's, he's saying is to discern true greatness. And part of your parents' job is to prepare you to live as servants of God, and in so doing, they're preparing you for that final day when you will stand before him. But kids, if I were to prepare you for something, I would prepare you for the future death of your mom and dad. See, for the majority of you, your mom and dad will die before you die. So there's a day in the future where you will stand before their casket and you will observe their lifeless form. So what are you doing today to prepare for that day? On that day, you will grieve and grief will be a gift from God. What is grief if not love persevering? And here's what I don't want you to experience, though. Regret. There's a big difference between grief and regret. And you will have regret on that day if you don't honor your mom and dad from this day until that day. Kids, you should see some moment every day to thank your mom and dad for their example. To thank them for the way in which they serve you. There is no one you should speak of with more enthusiasm and passion than your 
mom and your dad, if they are truly godly, truly servants, truly looking to serve you and the family, there's no one. Being a parent is one of the most difficult and yet rewarding jobs on the planet. But being a parent is giving of yourself daily for someone else. And that's what greatness is. Bringing yourself low to raise someone else. That's greatness. And so kids, there should be no one you should admire more. Because there is no one that you've seen live as unselfishly as your mom and dad. And you, you've been the object of their affection. So make it your purpose to fill their hearts with gratitude from this day until that day when you stand before their lifeless form. Honor your father and mother. And if you've neglected this, it could be because of ignorance. It's most likely because of arrogance. And so now you have discernment. So let the honoring begin. Look for ways to thank your mom and dad for their example of the way in which they serve and give for being truly great and make it your passion and purpose to do this so that when they close their eyes upon death, they do with hearts filled with appropriate, grateful expressions of appreciation. Well, we've seen what, that we need humility that values association with Jesus above self-promotion. We also need humility that prizes associations above rivalry. Last two verses, look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, but he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is a good warning for us today. For what you gather, these people were not speaking falsehoods. They're trying to discredit Jesus' ministry. They're, they're not false teachers. There were many who were following Jesus who weren't a part of the 12. And they're still looking to glorify God and to serve him. And these people were with, were with Jesus, desiring to serve the furtherance of the glory of God. And what we learn from this is they're as, as much then as now are many cliques in Christianity. There are tribes of people in the church as a whole who have ignored Jesus' teaching here. And, and what we find here is John trying to shut down ministry for someone who's not in their tribe. That's tribalism. It's not Christian ministry. He wants to stop their ministry because they're not sanctioned properly by Jesus. Friends, tribal ministry is dangerous. We have a lot of ways of being tribal. Black versus white, ethnic tribalism. Male versus female, gender tribalism. Reformed versus Arminian, theological tribalism. Rich versus middle class, class tribalism. Republican versus Democrat, political tribalism. Masks versus no mask. Vaccine versus no vaccine. COVID tribalism. And I could go on. Have you found yourself in a tribe and unwilling to work with or even acknowledge there might be people who disagree with you, but who are serving the Lord? 
You know, this is why we began praying for other local churches every Sunday, Sunday morning a couple years ago. We are not the only preaching church that, that shares the gospel every week. We are not the only one. If we are, we're in trouble. There's churches that we pray for that are not like us much at all in some ways. Doctrinally they are, but in practice they're not. But we have something very much in common. We love Jesus and we love the gospel and we want it to be made known in our area and throughout the world. And so we pray for Baptist churches and non-denominational churches and churches that disagree with about spiritual gifts. And we pray for Presbyterians because the church as a whole is bigger than Edgewood Bible Church. Can I get an amen from anyone? J.C. Ryle again. I love J.C. Ryle. He says, we forget that no church on earth has absolute monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down through the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Jesus had selected 12 to be apostles, but that doesn't mean that no one else could trust in God and Jesus and teach and work to, to spread the furtherance of the gospel. And friends, no person, however brilliant, and no church, however admired, has an exclusive hold on truth. We need to praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher is, the church that it happened in. The, the, the church is in no need of hot shots. There should be no famous preachers, only a famous savior. Now, the disciples' failure in these verses shows us the greatest problem with humanity. We are all blind and impotent and unbelieving and twisted. We need the rescue from our sins that the law and the prophets spoke of. We are by nature blind and we need to be given sight. We are faithless and perverse. We need salvation. We are self-serving and ambitious. And we need Jesus to humble us, to teach us. Ambition is a tricky thing. The disciples like us are captive to selfish ambition for the purpose of exalting themselves. They're so captive to their sin that they don't get it when Jesus announced that he's going to be handed over to men, that he's eventually going to die, and to die on their behalf. They don't get it. And an argument erupts as to who is the greatest. Friends, that's how captive they are to their sin. A ransom must be paid to free them. And what's the price? the life of God's sinless son's atoning death that must be paid to God the Father who is the offended party for the purpose of setting us free from the effects and power of sin. God accomplishes what is humanly impossible by sending and sacrificing his son for ambitious disciples and ambitious souls like you and me. And what's the result? Many have been bought from the slave market of sin. 
liberated from their selfish ambitions, freed from their lives of self-centeredness and directed towards a life of serving others for the glory of God. We need to remember the cross. The hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, and we're going to sing of it here in a moment, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. What does contempt mean? It means to scorn, disdain, to be disgusted with, to loathe, to hate, to abhor. And Watts rightly says we should be disgusted by our pride, by our sin. Jesus died for our pride. Our pride of trying to attain greatness in this world. The wondrous cross where God sent his son to die on our behalf. Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, I pray that our boasting is there, only in the cross. Let's pray. Father, on that cruel tree you climbed many years ago to satisfy the Father's wrath against our sin, we think of that this morning. And we confess of our continual pride, thinking that we can somehow attain greatness in this world. We've been foolish. And yet, but God, sending your Son, love so amazing, love so divine, that it demands our soul, our, our lives, our all. Father, I pray that we would be ready and willing to give of ourselves to serve you. Father, I pray for those seated here that have never turned to you in faith. Whether they are an adult, they've been here for some time, maybe even a member of this church, and have never turned in faith to trust in you, or a child who has heard this gospel, who has heard this good news and have never turned in faith, Father, we ask that they would this morning, that you would give them faith to believe, to trust in you. And that we would leave this place not consumed of ourselves and our own self-worth, but we would be consumed with you and how great you are and consumed with Christ, that we would go and make his name famous in this world. It's for your glory alone we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.